Part twenty six of Washington and the Riddle of Peace by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fourth Plenary Session, Washington, December twelfth. The reader will have seen verbatim reports of the speeches at the Fourth Plenary Session of the Washington Conference, and he will know already what decisions were handed out to us from the more or less secret session that prepared them for us. There has been a good deal of discussion here about the secret sessions and a certain indignation at their secrecy that I do not share. It is a matter of decency rather than concealment that men speaking various languages, representing complicated interests, and feeling their way toward understandings, should not be exposed to embarrassing observation and comment until they have properly hammered out what they have to say. It is far better to digest conclusions under cover, and to present the agreed-upon conclusion. This is no offence against democracy, no conspiracy against publicity. The mischief of secrecy lies in secret treaties and secret understandings, and not in protected interchanges. There is no sound objection to secret bargaining in committee, provided that finally the public is informed of the agreement arrived at, and of all the considerations in the bargain. The conclusions announced are important enough in themselves but to all who care for the peace of the world, they are far more important in the vista of possibilities they open up. Certain notable precedents are established. The four root resolutions do put very clearly those ideals of withdrawal and abstinence which must become the universal rule of conduct between efficient and politically confused or enfeebled states, if the peace of the world is to be preserved. That is the new way in international politics. It is the beginning of the end of all Asiatic imperialisms. And, following upon its assent to those resolutions, the conference voted upon certain special applications of them. The abolitions of the extraterritorial grievance, the right of China as a neutral power to escape the fate of Belgium, and the right of China to be informed on the article of any treaty affecting her, were established as far as a resolution of the conference could establish them. And then came Senator Lodge. For the fourth plenary session featured Senator Lodge, just as previous ones had featured Secretary Hughes, Mr. Balfour, and Monsieur Briand. Fifteen years ago I came to Washington, and Senator Lodge showed me a collection of prehistoric objects from Central America, and talked very delightfully about them. Fifteen years have changed Washington very greatly, but they have not changed Senator Lodge. He seems, perhaps, just a little slenderer and neater than before, but that may be a change in my own standards, and it was entirely in character with my former impressions of him, that in putting the four-power treaty before the conference he should indulge himself and his hearers in a vision of the realities of the Pacific, the multitudinous interests of its innumerable islands, its infinite variety of races, customs, climates, and atmospheres. 
It was a most curious and attractive phase of the always interesting conference to have this grey-headed, cultivated gentleman, breaking through all the abstract jargon of diplomacy and militarism, all the talk of powers, radii of action, fortifications, spheres of influence, and so forth, in his attempt to make us realize the physical loveliness and intellectual charm of this enormous area of the world's surface that the four-power treaty may perhaps save now and forevermore from the fear and horrors of war. The proposed four-power treaty, which thus starts upon its uncertain but hopeful journey toward ratification by the senates, legislatures, and governments of the world, is essentially a departure from the normal tradition of the treaties of the nineteenth century. It is the first attempt to realize, what shall I call it, the American way, or the new way, in international affairs. Its distinctive feature is the participation of two possible antagonists, America and Japan. Instead of a war, they make a treaty, and call in Britain and France to assist. It is a treaty for peace, and not against an antagonist. I think that the difference between treaties for, and treaties against, is one that needs to be stressed. The Anglo-Japanese treaty was a treaty against, a treaty against first Russia, then Germany, and then against some vaguely conceived assailant. It is a great thing to have Japan and England cordially immolating that treaty, now that this four-power treaty of the new spirit may be born. After Senator Lodge came Monsieur Viviani, with a very fine, if guarded, speech. Monsieur Viviani is a great speaker, but he is not merely eloquent, and I find people here saying little about his wonderful voice, or his overtones and undertones, or his romantic charm, but much about the subtle things he said. In a gathering that is tense with attention, one is apt, perhaps, to transfer one's thoughts and expectations to the gathering as a whole, but it seems to me that when Monsieur Viviani rose to welcome this great beginning on the Pacific, we were all thinking, and how much further and to what other regions of the world are you prepared to extend this spirit and method of this Pacific bond? There is another rather threadbare treaty against, or at least an understanding against, known as the Anglo-French Entente. Is the time due yet for the merger of that also in another and greater bond of peace? I do not know how far the question that was in his mind was in the mind of the meeting, but I think that Monsieur Viviani made it very plain that it was in the background of his own mind. His speech was designed to bring simplicity, the easiness of the Pacific problem, into sharp contrast with the tortured complexity of the Atlantic, the Afro-European problem. He spoke of the freedom of the Pacific from long-established hate traditions. He reminded us of the twenty centuries of war, and trampled frontiers, and outrages and counter-outrages that had left Europe and North Africa scarred and festering. He conjured up no bogies. He had nothing to say about those seven million phantom Germans ready to extract their hidden rifles from seven million mattresses and haylofts and rush upon France. But he reminded the conference, gravely and wisely, of the relative complexity of the European problem, of the new untried nationalities that had been liberated, 
of the vast heritage of tradition and suspicion that had to be overcome he addressed not only the conference but the impatient liberal aspirations of the world i ask you for forbearance he said and repeated that i ask for forbearance now that was a great speech and m viviani is manifestly the sort of frenchman with whom the new spirit can deal forbearance might well serve now as the watchword of europe and I wish that Mr. Balfour could have shown a fuller recognition of what M. Viviani had said. Mr. Balfour had been so fine on several occasions at this conference that I felt it is a little ungracious to him to confess, as I must do, that twice in this day of the fourth plenary session, once in the conference and also in the evening when he replied for the Allies at the Gridiron Club, he seemed to be missing an opportunity the opportunity of holding out a hand of friendship to liberal france for the reactionary france for the france of submarines and senegalese and inflated army and navy estimates neither britain nor america nor any other part of the world has any use and the more often we say that and the more distinctly we say it the better for every one but toward a France that can teach and practice forbearance, and come into great associations for the common welfare of mankind, we ought to hold out both hands. Most of the bitterness that has been directed towards France of late is not the bitterness of any natural hatred. It is the bitterness of acute disappointment that France, the generous leader of freedom upon both the American and European continents, no longer leads, seems to care no longer for either freedom or generosity. And twice I have seen opportunities lost for an appropriate gesture of reconciliation. Sooner or later, France and England have to say to each other, We have been sore and sick and exasperated and suspicious and narrow. Let us take a lesson from this American plan, and set about discussing an Atlantic treaty, an Afro-European treaty, worthy to put beside this pacific treaty and since this has to be said it was a pity that mr balfour could not take up m viviani's half-lead and begin to say it at the fourth plenary session of the washington conference end of part twenty six